Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 261, The Balaclava of the Sea. Last time, the Commonwealth forces, led by General Maltby, were forced to give up the southern part of the new territories, just above Hong Kong proper. And though General Sakai had asked Maltby and Governor Young twice to surrender, the answer was always in the negative. It's probable that the British were holding out hope for help from Singapore or the Americans in the Philippines. Either way, continued resistance was the order of the day. By December 17th, the Japanese had bombarded the northwestern corner of the island, damaging the large gun at Mount Davis, had weakened the defensive works at Belcher's Fort in the same area, had taken out 50% of the pillboxes, along the northern coast, and had shelled the northeastern corner at Pakshawan, modern-day Chaiwan, and then followed that up with an attempted invasion, which was beaten off, thanks in large part to two Chinese nationalist officers and the triads of Hong Kong, who were being paid to temporarily side with the defenders. But General Sakai wasn't done yet. Besides, his 10-day deadline was fast approaching. Now that General Maltby had the last of his troops on the island proper from Devil's Peak Peninsula, he got down to reorganizing his forces to maximize their defenses. His remaining forces were broken down into two brigades, East and West. East Brigade would be commanded by Brigadier Cedric Wallace, who was stationed at Taitam Gap, think north-central, on the eastern side of the island. While Brigadier John Lawson, the CO of the West Brigade, was quartered at Wong Ni Chong Gap, pretty much in the center of the island, just southwest of Jardine's lookout. Wallace had under his command the five seven Rajputs, the Royal Rifles of Canada's Battalion, and two companies of the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps, all supported by four batteries of the Hong Kong Defense Force, which included anti-air guns. Lawson in the West had the 214 Pujabis, the Winnipeg Grenadiers, the Middlesex Regiment, and a thrown-together company of odds and sods, that is, musicians, cooks, and other support troops. This left the 2nd Royal Scots in reserve, but because they had already lost a decent percentage of their number, they were augmented with men from the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps. Lawson's men were also to be supported by several batteries of large guns. But overall, Maltby's ace, such as it was, was his motor torpedo boats. The Japanese could bomb, strafe, and shell the island as much as they wanted. But unless their troops set foot on the island, that all meant little. Hence, 
Maltby had his lookouts peering across Victoria Harbor and his boat crews on constant alert. The British general and his two brigadiers had been working on their new dispositions since the night of the 14th, which was fortunate, because Sakai wasn't wasting any time. During the night of the 17th, he sent two reconnaissance teams to probe the island's defenses. For various reasons, one team failed to get across, but Lieutenant Mashushima's team was about to come ashore at Taiku, in the center of the eastern half of the northern shore. Yet even here, Maltby's men were alert and soon firing upon the Japanese, who returned to their boats and disappeared into the darkness. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. While obviously trying to gain intelligence, Sakai did not want to let the defenders get much sleep either. This tactic continued in the morning and during the day of December 18th. Most of the British-led troops along the northern shore were shelled or bombed as 36 bombers and 26 fighters joined Sakai's already existing air arm to harass and weaken the defenders' positions. And such was the intensity and duration of the bombings that Maltby believed that the attack was coming that night. And he was right. By the 18th, the Japanese 23rd Army's headquarters, as was the headquarters of the 38th Division, had moved down south to the new territories to better conduct the coming battle. Moreover, General Sakai and General Haiguchi the deputy chief of staff, had made their way to Kaloon to oversee the crossings themselves. Knowing the British were forced to cover the entire northern shore, indeed all parts of the island's coasts, Sakai would focus the majority of his assault on the eastern side of the north shore, thus concentrating his forces, which meant that Maltby was wasting much of his. The invading right flank would come from the area around the Takai Airport, the left flank from Devil's Hills. At 1800 hours, 6 p.m., the order for the invasion, which was to begin at 8 p.m., was given by Sakai. As H hour came, the 2nd Battalion of the 228th Japanese Regiment climbed into some of the boats they had been collecting over the last few days. Pushing off, they began to quietly paddle, making for the shore near the Taiku docks in the center of the eastern half of the shore. Covering them was artillery fire, which the defenders could not know for sure was nothing more than harassment fire. Colonel Doi, the man who had captured the Xin Moon Redoubt by breaking the rules, then climbed onto a barge with much of his command staff, and began crossing over with the 1st Battalion of the 228th Regiment. As the first wave of small boats came over, the invaders 
stayed low and avoided making any sounds. Fortunately for them, it was a moonless night and some of the black smoke from the oil fires still hung in the air. About halfway across now, their luck held as they had not been spotted. But then, the searchlights found them, which were followed by bullets. This forced the rickety armada of the first wave to disperse. It was every crew for itself. Still, the boats came on, and more by bad luck than anything else, the commanders of two of the brigades were wounded. But as Doy was right behind them with the second wave, he assumed direct command. At 9.40 p.m., what was left of the three regiments had reached the shores of North Point, just left of center of the eastern half of the northern coast. Just after this, a regiment reached the far northeastern shore, and another brigade made land at Limoon, again on the eastern half, near Aldrich Bay. With men on land, three red flares were sent up, to signal that at least some of the landings had been successful. As luck would have it, the Rajputs were facing the initial onslaught of the invaders, and suffered accordingly. Yet, despite days of shelling, the Indians fared well and inflicted heavy casualties. One anti-tank company that had come ashore lost so many men that as they tried to move out, they only had enough men to operate one gun. Still, by midnight, all six battalions of the first and second wave had reached shore and were ready to move forward, but that was when they found barbed wire holding up their progress. As they started working this out, roaming Bren carriers came along the coast and caused further confusion and casualties for the Japanese. Not until 1 a.m. did Lieutenant General Sano, Sakai's chief of staff, come ashore and ordered any men still lingering on the beaches to move forward. The overall Japanese plan for the night was to move around any serious resistance and make for high ground. When morning came, the light would allow them to see what they were up against, and more accurately shell the defenders. Still, the Japanese were forced to engage the Rajputs, but their superior numbers made this possible. By the time the attackers were finding heights in which to lie low, they had cut through the Indians, to the point that most of their officers were dead, which only added to their confusion. And yet, General Maltby did not, could not have a solid grasp of what he was up against. Later he would say that he thought the enemy would only send over two battalions on their first attack wave, as to not get in each other's way and to avoid a bloodbath on the beach. But this was not the case. Also, Maltby had convinced himself, based on nothing other than how he would attack the beach, that Victoria, the capital city, right across from Kaloon, would be where the main attack came, just left of center of the coast. Which is why he did not send out a counterattack, using some of the Middlesex, the Royal Marines, and naval personnel. Furthermore, when he finally did send out reinforcements, they were ordered to places that could not help resist the real main attack, nor in large enough numbers. 
as D Company of the 5-7 Rajputs was getting mauled, the Japanese 2nd Battalion of the 230th Regiment came ashore and headed west toward Victoria City. However, they ran into the North Point Power Station, and inside it was an eclectic force, of which some were the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps Fusiliers Platoon, men more than 55 years old. They were too old to be in the regular army, so volunteered to work with the Hong Kong force. They had all fought in the Great War, a few in the Second Boer War, which started in 1899. They, along with some free French troops, volunteers of the power company, and several executives of the major trading houses, might not have been fast on their feet, but they had seen much in their years and were able to hold up the entire Japanese 230th Regiment for much longer than expected. As it was one of these tycoons, or taipans, that called on Maltby for reinforcements, some Hong Kong volunteers and a company from the Middlesex, along with an armored car, was sent over. But this force was ambushed before it could reach the power station. Only nine men of this unit reached the old but steady men. As the Japanese could not shift these geriatric warriors, the invaders began bombing the station. By 1.45 a.m. on the 19th, the power station was surrounded and heavily damaged. Those still alive inside held out, but the end result was predictable. As such, and having combat experience, some of the men left the building and hid behind a nearby bus to continue the fight, hoping this would make the Japanese think there were either reinforcements or there were more defenders than there actually were. The Japanese, frustrated, brought forward three machine guns and shot up the bus. Two of the three men hiding behind it were seriously wounded. Then the Japanese charged. The third defender, an elderly man named Gagan, was also wounded, but was still game. When an officer and several soldiers came at the bus, Gagan rose and attacked them, killing the officer and four of his men. Gagan was then taken prisoner. Still, the old man had stopped the Japanese from moving further west for 18 hours, which allowed Maltby to move other men around and form a new defensive line. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. In the center of the eastern side of the North Shore sits Aldrich Bay, and just west or to the left of it is Taiku, where the invaders had already landed. As the Japanese 2-229th Regiment had already pushed the Rajputs aside there, they were making their way south for Mount Parker. Meanwhile, the 3rd Battalion of the 229th landed at Aldrich Bay, but then turned eastward toward Limoon. And perhaps this was unexpected, but that's not really an excuse. The Japanese managed to capture a 6-inch gun from the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps. 
This was reported to nearby officers who, as happens so many times in war, did not give this report serious weight, thinking that their men were overreacting, which allowed the 3rd Battalion of the 229th Japanese Regiment to continue on going east to capture the anti-air gun at another battery. And it was here that the Japanese atrocities began. The 29 POWs from this local fighting were bayoneted to death. Getting back to the 2nd Battalion of the 229th Regiment that was heading south from Mount Parker, they soon came upon a religious mission whose building was being used as an aid station. The 8th Company of the 2nd Battalion of the 229th Regiment was ordered to go inside and kill everyone, not just the patients, but the entire medical staff as well. In the confusion, five men managed to escape. Their later testimony would doom Colonel Tanaka, who gave this order. The battle for Mount Parker caused heavy casualties on both sides. The Canadians suffered grievously, as did one particular Japanese company that saw 65% of their men killed. Commonwealth reinforcements were sent, but they got lost along the way. And by the time they arrived at 7.30 a.m., there were already 100 enemy troops at the top of the height with their gun. Too many to be overpowered. The rest of the day of December 19th would see the practical end of the East Brigade. As for their numbers, at least half were now killed, captured, or wounded, and many of their large guns were either self-destroyed or captured by the enemy. As the sun went down, the East Brigade was left with one 18-pounder and two 3.7-inch field guns. The men were scattered, and the command structure was left in tatters. As for the West Brigade, that will be covered next time, but it's worth taking note of Maltby's ace, the actions of his motorboats that day. Clearly, they did not stop the first or second wave, but an invasion, certainly an amphibious one, has to be resupplied and reinforced. Hence, it was possible for the Commonwealth troops to inflict massive casualties on the enemy, while the motorboats made sure that no additional troops could be sent over. And again, though Maltby could not know this, General Sakai was working within a time frame in which to produce results. Just after sunrise on the morning of December 19th, Lieutenant Ron Ashby, in command of the island's six 60-foot-long motorboats, was with his fleet on the northwest corner of Hong Kong. He decided, wisely, not to put all his eggs in one basket, and thus sent his vessels out in pairs to attack. Motorboats, or MTBs 7 and 9, would go out first, and he, Ashby, would command the first patrol in Boat 7. Heading east into Victoria Harbor, MTB-7 was just north of MTB-9. Going past the southern edge of Kowloon, past Holtz Wharf, was when Ashby looked to the north into Kowloon Bay proper, and there he saw several vessels of different kinds. But what caught his eye was the leading group 
of ships, which consisted of several sandpans being pulled by a motorboat, and on each sandpan was about 20 Japanese soldiers. Knowing he needed to make sure they did not reach the island, he poured on the speed up to 37 knots. At the same time, he ordered that all five Lewis guns open up on this lead collection of ships. MTB-9 tried to get in its own shots, but Ashby accidentally kept his boat in Nine's line of fire. Worse, a group of Japanese Nate fighters were on patrol overhead, and they began to dive, to shoot at the two enemy motorboats. The two British boats kept coming at the lead group of enemy ships, with their guns blazing. By this time, so were the guns of the Japanese boat, as were the fighters overhead. Yet somehow, everyone was missing. Still, the wake caused by the two MTBs coming at full speed, Ashby came within five meters of the lead enemy ship, overturned the vessels, which then caught fire, as their fuel must have leaked out. Now swinging in a clockwise fashion deep within Kowloon Bay, Ashby's MTB-7 was then hit in its engine room, which forced it to slow down. But MTB-9 was able to damage two more enemy boats while making this turn. Moreover, MTB-9 would damage another vessel on its way out. Accuracy was not the greatest concern of either crew's part, as maximum speed was what with the planes overhead firing down, not to mention firing coming from Hong Kong Island itself. This let Ashby know that enemy troops were already on the island, and in that regard, he had failed. It was some of the fire coming from the island that further damaged MTB-7 engines, causing a second reduction of speed. But just before Kowloon Peninsula was cleared, Ashby's crew damaged two more enemy vessels. It was then their engines gave out, forcing MTB-2 to come in close, tie a line, and haul the commander's vessel away. MTB-2 made it safely back to its starting point, but Ashby's vessel now had two crew dead and 97 bullet holes. The Japanese pilots and ship's gunners were better shots than Ashby thought. The rest of the 19th was spent by these vessels going out in twos, and their orders were simple. Go and shoot up everything in sight until nothing remained or ammo ran out. Which sounds courageous, but there was only so much damage that could be inflicted on an invasion that was already well underway. By the time the 19th was over, only three MTBs were operational, which were ordered to head for Aberdeen along the southern coast. Also, 40% of the total crew was now lost. The Hong Kong Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve, which had hoped to stop the Japanese from coming over in any serious numbers, was the epitome of Britain's defense of the island, as well as much of Southeast Asia. Too little, too late. The MTB crew's actions that day, for their gallantry of a daytime attack, would later be called the Balaclava of the Sea, 
by coastal forces worldwide. The title was borrowed from Alfred Lloyd Tennyson's The Charge of the Light Brigade at the Battle of Balaclava in 1854, in which British light cavalry accidentally charged at a well-prepared Russian artillery battery. The horsemen reached the enemy line, but were forced to immediately retreat, having suffered horrendous casualties. As for the seamen that day, those who survived and those that did not were called the bravest of the brave. Hello everyone, Ray here. Have you heard the expression, less is more? Or as the folks who make the Ridge Wallet say, cluttered life, cluttered mind. Well, the first step to getting decluttered is taking a look at your bulging wallet, that giant thing in your back pocket. You need, no, you want, the Ridge Wallet, a minimalist front pocket wallet that will be the last wallet you'll ever buy. The Ridge helps you carry less, but always what you need. It looks nothing like a traditional wallet. It's two metal planes of titanium, carbon fiber, or aluminum, so there's an option for everyone, bound together by a durable plastic band. It's slim, FRID blocking, and lifetime guaranteed and comes in a dozen different styles and colors. I got the titanium gunmetal and the carbon fiber wallets so I can switch it up whenever I want. Now I carry what I need in my front pocket, and the Ridge wallet is so slim it seems to disappear. But all my valuables are right there. And for the ladies listening, you too can have all your necessities in one small sleek container. Join the more than 250,000 men and women who have switched and decluttered their lives. Get 10% off today with free worldwide shipping by going to ridgewallet.com ww2. That's ridgewallet.com ww2. And please use the code ww2. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. 